Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 24 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by actual FBI cases. In this episode, I interview former FBI agent Terry Haig, who officially served seven years with the FBI. However, his service to the Bureau, the Department of Justice, and other federal law enforcement agencies actually spanned more than 23 years. Terry is interviewed about working undercover as a crooked and corrupt defense attorney in the largest public corruption case in America. When the investigation, codenamed Operation Grey Lord, was initiated, Terry was a young assistant state's attorney fed up with the corruption in the Cook County, Illinois court system. Terry wore a wire for three and a half years, fully aware that he could be jeopardizing his reputation and law career in doing so. But at the conclusion of the undercover operation, Terry testified in 23 trials during a period of 10 years and 83 judges, lawyers, court personnel, and policemen were convicted for accepting bribes to fix court cases. Now, Terry and I got so deep into our conversation that we decided to make this a two-part episode. So this is part one. One of the reasons it ended up being so long is because I love this stuff. Anything that has to do with greed, corruption, fraud, I think it's because it's so personal. I mean, when you decide to pay a bribe or ask for a bribe or to scam or to defraud, it's usually a one-on-one relationship. I love to talk about this stuff. As a matter of fact, this week, I'll be making a presentation at the Philadelphia Federal Reserve Building. I'll be talking to educators from around the region about scams and schemes and, and how not to be defrauded. As you all know, my favorite show is American Greed. Scams and schemes and broken dreams. People will do anything for money. This will be the opportune time to plug my book, Pay to Play, which is all about corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. You can't go out and buy it now, but it will be released on September 20th and will be available for pre-order three to four weeks before the September 20th launch. But don't worry, I'll make sure to remind you about it later. (laughs) The interview is next, but after the interview, please stick around. I want to talk to you about the Robert Goldbrath crime fiction series. And as most of you already know, Robert Galbraith, Breath, Brath, not sure how you pronounce it, is actually J.K. Rawlings of Harry Potter. So stick around and we'll uh, talk about that after the interview. Now here's the show. Hi, everyone. I want to welcome my guest for today, Terry Hake. Hi, Terry. Hello, Jerry. This is going to be so exciting. This is a little different than what I've been doing. Uh, normally, I ask my guests to give us a little tease and then to tell us about when and why they joined the FBI. But in your particular case, that's part of the case. That's part of the story. So why don't we just jump right into it and tell me what was going on at the time that started this particular uh, investigation? 
what was happening with you and what was happening in the court system in uh, Chicago at the time. I became an assistant state's attorney, a county prosecutor in Chicago in 1977. And from the moment I joined the state's attorney's office, I started hearing rumors about judges who were taking bribes, lawyers who were paying off, and deputy sheriffs or court clerks who were acting as bagmen for the judges. As I worked my way through the system for the next two and a half years, I started appearing in front of these judges who were supposedly on the take. And uh, I also started losing cases, criminal cases, criminal prosecutions, for reasons that I felt weren't decided on the evidence. And uh, I'd see defense attorneys meeting with judges in their chambers before the the criminal prosecutions were called, and then I'd go out there and try the case and, of course, lose the case. And many of these were cases I felt I should have won in court. So in 1979, the fall of 1979, I was assigned to the Murder, Rape, and Child Molestation Preliminary Hearing Court at the main criminal courthouse in Chicago at 26 in California streets. And the story or the rumor in that particular courtroom was that if the judge's bailiff, Lucius Robinson, sat in the jury box during a preliminary hearing on the murder, rape, or child molestation, that was the signal or the sign to the judge, Judge Maurice Pompey, that the bailiff, Lucius, had received the money from the defense attorney and Judge Pompey could throw the case out. Now, hold on for a minute. You're talking about a sitting judge throwing out a murder and rape case? Murder, rape, or child molestation. Wow. The, the most serious cases, I think, in our criminal justice system. And he allegedly was taking bribes, and we later proved he was, to throw these cases out from the criminal defense attorneys. And did that happen to you? Did you have uh, a cases in the court in front of him where you suspected that he had taken a bribe to throw the case? Yes, absolutely. Many cases. Wow. It was an interesting story to say that the bailiff sat in the jury box as a signal. But during my three months in Branch 66, which was the name of the courtroom, uh, I never saw Lucius sit in the jury box once. But there's no doubt in my mind that many cases were fixed that I presented in court. Uh, they, they didn't need to have Lucius sit in the jury box to get the, the signal that the money had been paid. Uh, that wasn't necessary. Interesting story, but it, it didn't happen that way. And if it had, that would be quite obvious because there's absolutely no reason for a bailiff to sit in a jury box. Right, exactly, exactly. Maybe that's why they stopped it. It just looked too... Well, probably it looked, it looked strange. And also, I think they probably had even heard the story about him sitting in the jury box as a signal. Um, but after working down there three months, I made a complaint to one of my supervisors in the Cook County State's Attorney's Office about what I thought was going on in that, that courtroom. And to kind of make a long story short, 
my complaint about the corruption in the murder, rape, and child molestation courtroom eventually found its way over to the federal building in Chicago, to the FBI office. That's how I first became associated with the FBI, based on my complaint about the corruption in Branch 66. Now, is this the first time they had heard a complaint? It sounds like it was something that was, you know, systemic and that it somebody else at some other time would have brought this up. Right, Jerry, absolutely. And the reason my complaint registered with them was because the FBI had been hearing for years how corrupt the criminal court system was in Chicago, in Cook County. They had been hearing this from their criminal informants who had been or were defendants in the system, how these informants knew of cases being fixed by the defense lawyers for other criminals or for themselves. And also the FBI had developed evidence in about 1976 from a wiretap that cases were being fixed in Cook County. The FBI had this wiretap on some organized crime gamblers and overheard conversing with the organized crime gamblers was an attorney who told the gamblers, hey, if you guys get arrested for gambling, you have nothing to worry about it because I will fix your cases in the court system. So they picked up that in evidence, and they had even arranged for that lawyer to cooperate with them, but he was never willing to do in a judge or a lawyer. He gave them a court clerk. He gave them a Chicago police officer who was engaged in the bribery, both of whom were engaged in the bribery. So after that, and after hearing all these rumors for years about how the corrupt system, how corrupt the system was, uh, and actually after one murder case was fixed in 1977, uh, that was an outrage. They, they, the FBI, decided the only way to get at this corruption was to start an undercover case and use FBI undercover lawyers, undercover agents, to get at the corruption in the system. What is the reason why they didn't try to get a, an attorney that was working in the system to cooperate with them as a, as a cooperating witness? They felt that they, I, I think the FBI felt they didn't know whom they could trust. The system was so corrupt, they didn't know whom they, can tr who, whom they could trust some, they needed to find someone who wouldn't expose the, the operation. Okay. And also they felt after this one lawyer had kind of cooperated with them, the one who was caught on this wiretap, you know, their experience, they couldn't control somebody like that either. He wasn't willing to throw away his legal career by doing in a judge or a, a fellow attorney. And I, by throwing away his legal Career, I mean that if he had done a judge or a lawyer in, there was that code of silence issue in this whole thing, and he would have been violating that code of silence or that that line we hear about where you don't do in your your fellow uh, professionals. In this case, lawyers or judges for him. 
Well, that brings us to you. Um, you're a prosecutor. I mean, you see the corruption. What makes you different? I mean, it sounds like, you know, I, I'm probably getting ahead of myself in the story, but when you met with him the first time, why don't we go there first? What what happens the first time you meet with the FBI and you tell them about what you're seeing and, you know, how you're feeling about it? After I made my complaint about the corruption in Branch 66, it just so happened that a few months later, the FBI had started their undercover case, Operation Greylord. They did so by bringing in an FBI agent from Detroit named David Reese, who had a law license to practice in Illinois. He had grown up in north-central Illinois, outside the Chicago area, and he was licensed to practice in Illinois. When the FBI brought in Reese to go undercover, the Department of Justice in Washington told the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago that if you're going to do this case, you need to notify certain public officials in Illinois that you're going to do this undercover staying in the court system because you don't want your undercover agents or your assistant U.S. attorneys who are supervising this case to jeopardize their law license licenses by uh, having the undercover lawyers present false testimony in court, and that kind of thing. So the FBI decided that they could trust a couple of people in Illinois. They felt they could trust the governor of Illinois. It wasn't Rod Blagojevich. It was uh, Jim Thompson, <laughs> who was the former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Illinois. So they told the governor to protect themselves and they also told my boss, the elected prosecutor, we call it state's attorney in Cook County, they told him. And they felt they could trust him because he had com been complaining for years to them about how corrupt the system was. And he had also complained to them about this murder case that had been fixed in 1977 that involved the Chicago mob hitman killing a Teamster Union official, uh, and there were two eyewitnesses to that murder, so he, he complained to them. But I think they felt mostly they could trust Bernie Carey, my boss, the state's attorney, because he used to be an FBI agent. Okay. So when they told <laughs> Carey about the corrupt, about the undercover case that they had just brought Reese in, that's when it came up that I had recently complained about the corruption in the murder, rape, and child molestation courtroom. Now, how does telling the state's attorney and the governor, how does that take away from the possible liability uh, of uh, the FBI and these undercover uh, lawyers? There was a case from 1979, a, a, an Illinois Supreme Court opinion, where a lawyer in Cook County, who was a prosecutor in Cook County in the early 70s, he tried to set up a couple lawyers who were paying bribes to Chicago police officers to change their testimony. So he told the officers to take the bribes from the two attorneys 
and then to lie in court as the attorneys wanted the officers to do about the arrest of these criminal defendants. So the lawyers were ultimately charged, and they, of course, got off in the Cook County corrupt criminal justice system. And then someone filed a complaint against that prosecutor, whose name was Mort Friedman. They filed a complaint with the Attorney Disciplinary Commission saying that by Mort Friedman telling the officers to take the bribes from the attorney, attorneys and to change their testimony, he had suborned perjury in the courts. And he didn't let anyone know he was going to do this. Not the judges the officers were lying in front of. Uh, no one had he told to get permission to do this. So the case went all the way to the Supreme Court on his discipline, and he did save his law license by one vote on the Supreme Court. So the Justice Department in D.C. said, well, to avoid this Mort Friedman situation where he didn't notify anyone that he was going to have the police officers lie for the attorneys, you should notify, you, the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office, should notify the governor and Bernie Carey. So that's why they, they did it that way. Okay, that makes sense. All right, so... Your uh, boss lets the FBI know that you have made complaints, and uh, what happens next? One of the assistant U.S. attorneys at this meeting with the FBI and my boss, Bernie Carey, the state's attorney, was a former assistant state's attorney named Chuck Skolarski. Chuck was now an assistant U.S. attorney, and Chuck knew me a little bit from the state's attorney's office, so they kicked it around and received permission from Bernie Carey, the state's attorney, to reach out for me based on my complaint to see if I could help them with information regarding the corruption in the court system. They felt they could trust me because I had been one of the few that had ever complained about what was going on in the system. Now, and that's a good question. Why didn't more prosecutors complain my personal opinion on that jerry is that people had too much to lose again they had this this thin line that you didn't cross you didn't you didn't rat out your fellow lawyers you didn't rat out judges if you wanted to get ahead in the system you kept your mouth shut and just turned your back on it or looked the other way I mean, it wasn't that there weren't honest people out there. The system just made it very, very difficult for the honest people to come forward and do the right thing. All right. And again, I may be getting ahead of myself, but did this go both ways? Did prosecutors ever pay bribes to the judges? No, the prosecutors never did. But there, we did develop evidence that prosecutors were taking bribes to dismiss cases. Uh, no one was ever charged, but uh, we d no prosecutors were ever charged with that. But uh, we did develop such evidence uh, that it was going on. Mm. But we did hear along the lines of your question, uh, 
judges were taking money sometimes to find defendants guilty. Uh, it was that was called a reverse fix, where you pay a bribe to find someone guilty. It was called a reverse fix, kind of as a joke. And and who was paying those bribes? Uh, a co-defendant's attorney. Uh, a defendant. Uh, a defendant who might be representing a family uh, who was the victim of a crime, or if there was a well-connected uh, political family who was the victim of a crime. The polit- a politician might pay the judge uh, as a courtesy to find someone guilty. And we had one judge who actually bragged about that during the investigation. What, was that uh, something that was recorded, caught on tape? Yes. Eventually, as the case uh, uh, went on, we put, planted a, uh, a wiretap, a Title III listening device in a judge's chambers, and the judge once joked to an attorney that uh, sometimes he'd get so drunk that uh, the next morning he couldn't remember if he was supposed to find the defendant guilty or not guilty after having taken the bribe. Ah, uh, what a joke. Yeah, really. All right, so you're at this meeting now, and, and they reach out to you. Because, uh, they do reach out to you at first just to get additional information, additional cooperation that uh, this corruption uh, is going on. Yes, we had this meeting in April of 1980, late April, and uh, they asked me about my complaint about the murder, rape, child molestation courtroom, about other things I had seen in the system. And they basically said at the end of the first meeting, well, thank you for coming down and meeting with us here today. And I was in a room with the U.S. attorney, assistant U.S. attorneys. Uh, the FBI special agent in charge had come into the room for a short time, FBI supervisors. And they said, well, thank you for coming down. We'd like you to come down again next week. So I think what they did was after I revealed what I knew about the system, and they got a feeling for me and my integrity or whatever, they decided that uh, they were going to ask me to go undercover at the next meeting a week later. So it was almost like an audition, and you didn't know it. Exactly, Jerry, exactly. And I later found out that they felt I looked too clean-cut too much like a Boy Scout to really pull anything off. Is there a certain look somebody willing to accept a bribe needs to have? <laughs> I guess so. They asked me to grow a mustache at that second meeting to look a little uh, whatever. Swarmy. Swarmy, yes, that's a good word. And did you do it? I did. I, I started growing a mustache, but I didn't like the way it was coming in. And uh, after a about 10 days I shaved it and just decided to pretty much be myself. Okay. So now when did the, why don't you become an FBI employee to, to, to pull this off? When did that part come about? Well, actually that didn't happen for approximately another 10 months. Uh, they decided when they asked me to go undercover to have me stay in place as an assistant state's attorney as a prosecutor, holding myself out as a prosecutor who took bribes. 
as we discussed, it wasn't that unusual because we there was evidence that this had happened before with prosecutors taking bribes from the defense attorneys. So we decided that I would be transferred to a narcotics courtroom at the main criminal courthouse, 26th in California, and uh, I'd be transferred to uh, Judge Wayne Olson's courtroom. And one reason, uh, there were a couple reason I was, reasons I was transferred to Olson's courtroom. The first one being by moving to narcotics court, it was kind of a natural progression from where I was in the state's attorney's office into his courtroom. And secondly, and above all, the reason I was transferred to Wayne Olson's courtroom was because he was rumored to be one of the most corrupt judges in the system. So on May 5th of 1980, I began my nine months in Judge Olson's courtroom, holding myself out to be a corrupt prosecutor, one who took bribes. And so I was in his courtroom for nine months, and a lot went on during those nine months. And how were they able to indicate to others that you were willing to take bribes? Do they do that through informants, just kind of whispering, um, you know, to others? No, it was all on me and an untrained uh, undercover uh, agent. Uh, it was all on me. Uh, I think they felt that it was so corrupt down there in his courtroom that from the moment I entered his courtroom, lawyers would be stuffing money into my pockets and the judge would be taking me in on his bribery schemes. And so the night before I went down there, we practiced with the tape recorder they gave me, the Nagra tape recorder. It was a Swiss-made reel-to-reel recorder about the size of a paperback book. We practiced with it, but of course I went down there and nothing happened uh, for three months. Uh, it wasn't just like on TV where they're taking me in from the first day. I had to wait three months to develop uh, some context down there in the corrupt narcotics courtroom. Well, let me ask you, did you go in every day with the NAGRA turned on, or were you prepared to turn it on if you felt like you were going to get into that first corrupt conversation? Well, they gave me the NAGRA, and I wore it for about a week, and nothing happened. So they told me, well, you don't have to wear it until something happens. Uh, keep it at home. And if something happens, then we'll have you record on the back end. So for about three months there, after the first week, I did not wear it until uh, one attorney eventually in late July of 1980 gave me $100. And what was that for? Well, interesting you should ask that. Because he gave me $100. I became quite friendly with him. His name was Jim Costello. He had been a Chicago policeman, had been an assistant state's attorney. And I became friendly with him over drinks, over lunches. And uh, one Friday, he gave me $100 for being a great guy. So I, of course, called the FBI office and turned the money in. And an agent and a couple prosecutors met me near the uh, old Chicago Stadium where the Bulls played basketball. 
And uh, they said, well, this is great. You got your first $100 here, but $100 for being a great guy is not a bribe. So get back and, and work on Costello some more. But after get, receiving that $100, I went back and saw him the following Monday, and I was wearing the Nagra tape recorder, and I firmed up the, the $100 that he had given me on Friday. I confirmed that. And then in that conversation, he also told me about a couple of police officers he was bribing down in Chicago's traffic court to dismiss drunken driving cases. So I... I got some good conversation on the recorder uh, three days later. And then the second $100 bribe was or wasn't a bribe again. He gave me $100 to take my girlfriend out to dinner. The prosecutor said, well, that's still not a bribe. But then finally, the third time, and this all happened within about 10 days, the third time he gave me $50 to release a car from evidence the car had been impounded with narcotics in it. So for $50, I, I uh, uh, drafted an order to have the car released from evidence. Now, since uh, I know that you work the child molestation cases, you know what I'm thinking. This is all him, you know, priming you, seducing you, you know, getting you prepared for the bigger stuff. Exactly. That's what he did. Before he even gave me that first $100 for being a great guy, he told me how, as a Chicago police officer, he had taken bribes from criminal defense attorneys, had taken bribes from citizens that he stopped for speeding or for red light cameras, maybe 20 bucks here, 20 bucks there, $50 once on a gun case from an attorney. Uh, to change his testimony in court, an illegal gun case. And then he told me, you know, he was on the police department for 12 years, went to law school at night, received his law degree. Then he joined the state's attorney's office for about three years. And he told me that he took bribes as a prosecutor in uh, Chicago traffic court, in one of the suburban courthouses, took uh, bribes on narcotics cases when he worked in the adjoining narcotics courtroom. So he was, as you say, priming me to see how I would react to what he was telling me. And then I, when he gave me that $100 for being a great guy, I think that was a test, too, to see how I would react. And I guess I reacted correctly because then the money started coming in pretty uh regularly after that what were you saying to yourself how were you feeling because i mean you probably had some type of you know elation because it was working and you know the the undercover was moving forward but here you are a man of integrity and you are you know taking this bribe and and, and he's believing that you are corrupt so what's going on in your mind well you're right, Jerry. I was focused on the mission, so to speak, of you know developing evidence of uh, him paying bribes and what the judge was up to, of course. And so I was elated when he would give me a bribe. But the only conflict I really had in my mind was he was kind of uh, suspect or he was known as somewhat of a, a a slimy lawyer 
in the in the criminal courts building, and I didn't want my fellow prosecutors to think that uh, by my association with him that I had crossed over into Jim Costello's world. But as we later found out, many prosecutors did think that I'd gone over to the dark side because they saw me hanging out with Costello in the courthouse hallways, in the lunchroom there, or in the uh, the local bar down the street or the local restaurants. And they thought, gee, what's he doing with that guy? And psychologically, I was worried about that. I didn't want to be thought of by my peers as this slimy lawyer like Costello was. But at the same time, you needed to develop that reputation so that other defense attorneys and possibly judges would approach you. Exactly, exactly. Wow, I can see the dilemma there. Right, so psychologically, it was a little difficult for me. Earlier this month, I spoke for a judge out in the western suburbs, and he used to be one of my peers in the state's attorney's office, and he told me that, yeah, he thought I had uh, gone over to the dark side by hanging out with Costello and and the likes of him. Mm. So that was difficult. But the relationship with Costello did prove to be quite fruitful because he's the one who gave us a view into what was going on in Judge Olson's chambers. So he's bribing me. Usually it was about $100 to dismiss a felony narcotics case. And at the same time, he's bribing me, and I'm recording all those bribes. He's also telling me about how he was paying off Judge Olson to fix felony narcotics cases. You might, And you have all of that on tape. And I'm getting all that on tape. You might say, well, why is he bribing you? And also bribing the judge. Well, kind of the feeling in the courthouses by many of these defense attorneys was that you make everybody happy. So you bribe the prosecutor or you bribe the policeman and you bribe the judge. That way nobody complains if everybody's in on it. So he and I and the judge go out to lunch one Friday afternoon in August. And we it was a, a long, liquid lunch. We never went back to the courthouse. And the judge became very intoxicated in the in the Italian restaurant where we were in. And he's throwing his wine glass against the wall when, after he'd finished drinking the wine and saying in Italian that the uh, the wine glass was dead. And then they'd bring him another one. And they they put up with this in the restaurant because they knew he was a judge. So finally, after being in there almost all afternoon, I told Costello, hey, I've got to go. I've got a date tonight. So I suggested to Costello, who was in better shape than the judge, hey, you better drive the judge home. He's in no condition to drive. So it was a good suggestion on my part for the good of the case, because on the way home, Olson, the judge, told Costello that if Costello was willing to give him 50% of whatever, whatever he made on case referrals, that the judge would take him in as his partner. So cases that were supposed to go to a Chicago Bar Association attorney who was assigned to the courthouse that day, cases where defendants came in and said they were ready for trial or for hearing, 
And the judge would say, well, you don't have a lawyer. You're not ready. And Olson was supposed to send those cases to the Bar Association attorney, but he was handing those cases off to one of his favored lawyers in the courthouse. And Olson told Costello that that lawyer was kicking back 25% of whatever he made for those referrals. But if Costello was willing to give him 50%, he'd take Costello in as his favored lawyer. So Costello jumped at that agreement. And he told you about it later? He told me about it the following Monday. He came in very excited about this deal. He he had just cut with Olson on this referral scheme. So I guess the judge really wasn't that drunk. He was sober enough to talk about business. Um, And so they, they cut that deal. And the judge told Costello that they could make anywhere between 500 and a thousand dollars a week each on this referral scheme. And it doesn't sound like a lot of money, but in the long term between a scheme like that and the money he was getting from other lawyers, I estimated that the judge was making his judicial salary in cash on the side. Well in today's dollars, a judge in Cook County is making hundred and ninety one thousand dollars a year. So it was pretty good money. It all added up. It was a volume business. It certainly was. And then another thing that Costello started telling me after they cut this deal, he would tell me about how he was paying the judge off in his chambers every Friday and how much he was paying him. And sure enough, as the judge predicted, it was anywhere between 500 and $1,000 a week being paid to the judge in chambers every Friday. And so I was recording all that. And that's what led us to eventually putting a listening device, a wiretap, a bug, a Title III in Judge Olson's chambers. And was that fruitful? Absolutely. Um, So Costello started telling me this in August of 1980. And One of the prosecutors decided that, well, we certainly had enough probable cause to bug the chambers, and we thought it would be a relatively easy thing to get done. Uh, We needed approval from the Department of Justice in Washington, and we were kind of facing a deadline because Judge Olson was rumored to be, he wanted to be transferred out of uh, this narcotics courtroom into a a different courtroom, and it looked like he was going to get transferred out. So we applied for the uh, the bug in the chambers in around October 1st of 1980, and we were facing this deadline of the judge getting transferred, and the Department of Justice could not make a decision. They were very reluctant to bug a judge's chambers. It had, Would this have been one of the first times that they did so? Exactly. That's why they were so reluctant. A judge's chambers had never been bugged before in the United States. And I think in Washington they felt, wow, how could something like this be going on? A judge's chambers is kind of a uh, sanctuary where lawyers and uh, lawyers from both sides and the judge could discuss the fine points of the law. The head of the FBI at that time, the director, was William Webster, and he had been a federal appeals court judge in St. Louis. And so he, he, I think, was a little bit hesitant, as were the lawyers at the Department of Justice. 
So that's why they didn't approve the bug until late November of 1980. And they only approved it after they had me and the U.S. attorney and one of the lead assistants fly back to Washington to meet with William Webster and the head of the criminal division of the Department of Justice. They wanted to see who was this young attorney that was cooperating with the FBI that was saying all this about what was going on in Judge Olson's chambers. They wanted to assess me in person. Mm. So I had a meeting with the uh, director of the FBI and the head of DOJ criminal after having graduated from law school uh, three years earlier. <laughs> wow. Quite something. It, <laughs> yes, I can imagine. And then they approved the bug after that meeting. Okay. After Director Webster and the head of the Department of Justice Criminal Division approved the bug in the chambers, we had organized or planned for months how we were going to get this bug in there. Uh, so what they finally decided was that they would have two agents go in there and pose as repairmen. And they picked the perfect day to install the bug in the chambers because it was the day before Thanksgiving, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving of 1980. And we had organized and planned and agonized about how they were going to put the bug in. But it turned out to be the perfect day to install the bug because all the dedicated public servants had left the courthouse around noon the day before Thanksgiving. And so the, the two FBI technical agents just walked in posing as repairmen and got into the chambers and installed the bug. Was the judge in? No, the judge was on vacation down in Florida. Oh, uh, perfect. But the judge who had been sitting in that courtroom as the substitute judge, he was an honest judge, and they even surveilled him after he left the building that day to make sure he didn't come back if he had forgotten something or something. So it was quite a detailed plan to do this installation of the bug. So when Judge Olson gets back from his Florida vacation on December 1st of 1980, the bug was up and going. And the very first day we caught one of the rumored to be corrupt lawyers in the chambers discussing case fixing with Judge Olson. Wow. The very first Immediately. Day. Right. And actually, one of our best quotes from the six weeks that the bug was in the chambers was on that first day. Because Judge Olson says to this lawyer, I love people who take dough because you know exactly where you stand. And this lawyer responds, sure, that's the only way to do business. They were discussing wow. case, case fixing. And from then on, we were, we caught about 10 lawyers back there in the chambers bribing Judge Olson. We wanted to catch Costello in there discussing their case referral, case fixing scheme. Oh, right, that's supposed to be every Friday, right? It was supposed to be every Friday, but they kind of slackened off on the every Friday thing, and it was kind of hit or miss. And we had to wait 10 days before we got Costello back there. And the reason, Jerry, we wanted Costello back there discussing with Olson the case fixing was because that would confirm this conspiracy they had. 
I had developed evidence from Costello on my tape recorder about the scheme, but we had no acknowledgement from Olson that, that he was part of this scheme. But we finally got that 10 days in. And the reason we got it was because Costello and Olson got into an argument about money. It was an ugly argument. Costello goes into the chambers and said, Judge, here's uh, 500 from last week. So a few minutes later, Olson calls Judge Costello back into the chambers, and he says, there was only $450 in that envelope. Costello said, what do you mean there was 500 in there? There was 500. No, there was only 450. And then Olson said, you owe me $500 from last week. And Costello said, what do you mean? He said, I referred these two cases to you last week, and you didn't pay. And Costello said, those were my clients. You did not refer them to me. They, I developed those two clients on my own. And Olson said, nope, I referred them to you. So Costello storms out of the chambers, comes out to me, and he tells me all about this, and I'm recording Costello. So I advised Costello that he should go in there and give Judge Olson the $50 that was supposedly short from the envelope, plus he should pay him for the two cases from last week. So fortunately for the case, Costello goes in and does all that, and they they make up. They're partners again. So that oh, my be- goodness. How I mean, you can't get any better than that. No, it's a great theater, great theater. So the, as I say, the bug was in the chambers for six weeks, and uh, we developed evidence against 10 attorneys for fixing cases back there. And, of course, we developed uh, substantial evidence against Judge Olson. He and Costello, as a matter of fact, were when they were eventually indicted uh, for Costello's bribes to me, for the referral scheme, and other payoffs Costello had made to Olson, their only hope was to suppress all the tape recordings I had made of Costello and to suppress the tapes from the bug in the chambers. And once they lost that motion in federal court to suppress those recordings, then they decided they'd both plead guilty. So Costello received eight years, and Olson received uh, 12 after pleading guilty. But after the bug was in for six weeks, the U.S. Attorney's Office decided they had more than enough evidence to prosecute Costello, Olson, and others and that there was no need for the bug to be in there any further. So that's when they pulled the bug out of the chambers in in mid to late January of 1981. And then they said, well, what are we going to do with Terry? The FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office decided that after working in Judge Olson's chambers for nine months, there really wasn't much more future for me as a, a corrupt prosecutor my next assignment would not have given me the discretion to dismiss cases like I was doing in narcotics court. So they decided that the best course of action would be for me to become a criminal defense attorney. That way I could roam throughout Cook County and pay bribes to to judges or their bagmen, who were usually Chicago police officers or court clerks. So in February of 1981, 
I quit the state's attorney's office where I had been cooperating with the FBI for the previous nine months. And I then became an employee of the FBI. I wasn't an agent, but I was an undercover lawyer for them. And was the purpose of you becoming an employee so that you could get paid? Because now you didn't have a job. Exactly. So I could be paid. Right. I quit my job with the prosecutor's office which I loved uh, in one sense. I mean, uh, I loved being a prosecutor. I didn't like the corrupt part uh, behind all the other players in the system or with the other players. But but I needed a paycheck. I needed to work some more. And I guess it also, I mean, they could have paid you, you know, as an informant, but that would not have looked good in court later on. Exactly. They felt it would... uh, look better if I was a paid employee. And also, I think they felt it would give me some protection if I was an FBI employee. Because there was always this danger out there that a lawyer might retaliate against me in the future or have, or a lawyer who represented the the types of people who could very easily kill you might have one of his clients uh, retaliate against me. And I think they felt if I was an FBI employee that it would make these corrupt people think twice before any retaliation. Now, did any members of your family know the truth? I mean, did you share that with your wife, that you were quitting, not because you really wanted to be a defense attorney, but because you were cooperating with the FBI? Well, when I first met with the FBI in April of 1980, I asked if I could discuss it with my mother. So they did say I could discuss it with my mother. Uh, I didn't tell my father. He was he's quite he was the quite quite the loquacious type that would have been very, very proud of it, and I didn't feel he might. Uh, I didn't feel he would, could keep the secret because he'd be so proud. So, and that's right. At the time, you were dating, so you weren't married. Right, I wasn't married, and they did not want me to tell my girlfriend. Uh, we'd only been dating. Uh, for a short period of time, and she was in law school. They they didn't like that fact. Her two brothers were attorneys. Her father, who was now dead, he had been a judge in Cook County for 25 years, so they specifically told me not to tell my girlfriend. But shortly after I went undercover, I did tell her against their wishes. And she kept and she kept the secret. She kept the secret, and the FBI case agent would tell you that they uh, made me marry her because I told her. <laughs> and uh, well, it, we're still married thirty some years later. So I, if, that, if that did happen, it, uh, it it worked out as far as the marriage is concerned. Oh, that's great. That's great. And. That's how the first part of the story ends. Uh, when they asked me to quit the prosecutor's office where I had been cooperating for nine months with them. And that's how I became an FBI employee. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. I'd love to continue on with this because this case is so huge and there's so much more to it. Do you think you can come back again next week and we can do a part two? Yes, Jerry, I'd be absolutely happy to do that. All right, well, let's do that then. Before we go on, I do want to skip ahead a little bit because you became an FBI employee, but then there was a time and a period that they decided that you should become 
an FBI agent. Can we just get a little bit of that on uh, part one uh, before we end and continue part two next week? Yes, after working undercover three years, first as a corrupt prosecutor just cooperating with the FBI, and then as a lawyer working undercover for them for two years, the FBI decided they were going to make me a special agent. So in August of 1983, while I was still undercover, I was sworn in as an FBI agent in an office garage we had in one of the suburbs of Cook County. And in those days, you were sworn in as agent, and you flew to Quantico for training for four months. Well, I didn't do that. I was sworn in as an agent, and I stayed undercover for another four months before going to Quantico. Now, let me ask you this question, because um, I've done a number of episodes with agents who went undercover, and they talked about you know, going down to Quantico to go through the undercover school and to to get assessments. Did any of that happen with you? No, it didn't happen. Uh, And I think that's one interesting part of my story in that here I was, this lawyer, about two and a half years out of law school, working with the FBI, had no training as FBI undercover officer or agent or policeman. I only had law school training, and I was hugely successful for three years and seven months as an undercover agent, undercover lawyer, uh, without any training. But I guess uh, at some point someone decided, let's not push this any longer. Right. They they decided that the only uh, way to protect me was to become an FBI agent. And it's something I wanted, of course, by that point. I'd taken the exam. I'd done the oral interview in another city, taken the physical. I was all set to be hired about six months before I became an agent. I was ready to be hired. But because I was undercover, they didn't know what to do with me. And I don't think it had ever been done. I don't think it's ever been done since where they swear someone in as an FBI agent while they're undercover. Especially swear the men in the garage. Right, exactly. <laughs> Not very formal. All right, well, let's stop now because this has gotten to a point where, you know, I just want to keep asking questions. And, uh, you know, we, we've kind of reached our time. So we're going to stop now. And next week we will start again on part two of this unbelievable story. But before we go, you've got to tell us, why was it called Operation Greylord. If you look at the FBI's website or at Wikipedia, it's going to say that it was named after the gray wigs that English judges wear. Not true. The FBI case agent at the time was reading the daily racing forum and saw a horse named Greylord. And he liked the sound of it. It sounded like Operation Overlord, which was the D-Day invasion. So that's how Greylord got its name from the case agent, Lamar Jordan, reading the Daily Racing Forum. Oh, wow. We got an inside scoop. Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Terry. It's been fascinating. And we will talk to you again next week. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you for having me. 
And that's the end of part one of this episode. As always, back at jerrywilliams.com in this episode's show notes, you'll find photos of Terry and photos of that not so many NAGRA recording device that Terry had to conceal during the three and a half years he recorded conversations with judges, bagmen, and other attorneys. Also in the show notes, you'll find links to newspaper articles and an FBI website overview about Operation Greylord. You'll also find a link to Terry's book, Operation Greylord, the true story of an untrained undercover agent and America's biggest corruption bust. One thing that you won't find in the show notes is the answer to this question. Why didn't Terry retire from the FBI? Why did he leave after only seven years? You'll have to come back to listen to part two to get the answer to that question. Now let's talk crime fiction. As you all know, when I started this podcast, I wanted it to be a true crime and crime fiction podcast. True crime will be the agents telling their stories and sharing their own books, their own true crime and memoirs about their careers. And the crime fiction would be books and movies and TV shows that I selected to talk about. Now, actually, I try to read at least two books a month, but sometimes you'll find that I don't talk about books. That's because if I don't like a book, I'll keep it to myself. Most of the time, if I'm reading something that I'm not enjoying, I'll just stop reading it. And that's where I am right now with the second book in the Robert Goldbrath series. In the first book, Cuckoo's Calling, I enjoyed it. And I could see that uh, J.K. Rawlings, I mean Robert Goldbrath, was learning about crime fiction. But the second book, I'm having some trouble with it. I'm going to keep reading, so this will actually be a two-part crime fiction review. The first part, eh, not so good. The stakes in the book don't seem to be high enough, and there's a lot of filler about Comoran strikes the main character's hurting leg, and about the weather, and about his assistant and her fiancé's troubled relationship. Now, I should like the book because it is about a mid-list author and something that he writes that causes the whole publishing industry to be in an uproar. So I'm going to stick it out. I am going to try my best to finish the book. If you've read it, let me know what you think. I don't normally do negative reviews, but I figure J.K. Rawlings will not be devastated or hurt financially if I tell people that I didn't like her book. I will still read the third book in the series, Career of Evil, because I already paid for it and downloaded it. But let me know what you think about the series, really. Email me, tweet me, let me know. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again next week for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.